Before we start the show today, I want to talk with you about my new ebook, How to Create a Powerful Email Newsletter, a Comprehensive Guide for Creatives. An email newsletter is the number one best way to drive sales to your shop if you have a creative business or any sort of creative endeavor. And to find out kind of a firsthand example, I talked to a creative business owner who has recently started an email newsletter that has totally been transformative for her. My name is Cody Bachman, and I upcycle fabric and to fun toy storage solutions for kids and stuffed monsters. And you can find me at lewined.com. For the first four years of my business, I didn't have an email newsletter until I read your article. And then I was like, you know, maybe I should try this. My newsletter in 2014, I launched it January 2nd of 2014. And since launching it, it is the source of about 60% of my purchases. That's amazing. So yeah. 60% of the people who are coming to your shop and actually buying something are coming from the newsletter. Now I'm selling out like within an hour to three hours of every stocking. So I know that like starting a newsletter has been a really wise decision. Create a powerful email newsletter just like Cody did. My new ebook will show you how to identify a goal for your newsletter, figure out how frequently to send it, how to build your list and brand your newsletter, and also what to put in it that will actually make your subscribers look forward to receiving it. You can find my ebook at my website, walshynaps.com. And now onto the show. To episode 48 of the Walsh Apps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today I'm visiting Durham, North Carolina, and I'm at the headquarters of Spoonflower, the largest marketplace of surface designs by independent artists all over the world. I'm excited to be talking with the co-founder of Spoonflower, Stephen Fraser. Stephen, welcome. Thank you for having me. So you've been at Spoonflower through its entire life as a company, and that's around seven years now. That's right. Right? Okay. So describe what Spoonflower uh, looks like right now. I mean, we're sitting here. It's pretty amazing. I just took a tour. And um, like how many employees do you have? And just kind of give people a sense of, you know, what does it look like? What does the space look like? And, and what does your production level look like right now? So Spoonflower today uh, is in an office park in Durham, North Carolina, right on the edge of RTP, which is Research Triangle Park, sort of a, oh, a nice wooded uh, suburban office park. Uh, you walk through the door and you, you see a lobby uh, that has examples of Spoonflower products, including our wallpaper, lots of fabric, uh, gift wrap, uh, lots of things actually, you know, either made uh, and designed or designed by Spoonflower customers. So there are examples of plush toys and uh, you know pillows and things in the lobby, some of which we've bought from the Etsy shops of Spoonflower customers and some of which we've just printed and, and put up. We've had you know a sofa and chairs covered with um, designs bought from the Spoonflower marketplace. There is, uh, this is uh, dear to my heart, uh, there's a ceramic deer head covered with Spoonflower fabric from the Etsy shop Near and Deer. Uh, which uh, and you, you yourself can go there and choose your own ceramic animal head uh, from a rhino to, to a buck and uh, specify any Spoonflower Marketplace design and they will cover it uh, with that design in fabric for you. 
Um, so uh, yeah, the Spoon Farm Marketplace um, is well represented in our in our lobby, and uh, the word Spoonflower is on the wall in the door. There's actually a, a Google virtual tour uh, of our office for people who want to have that experience themselves. Um, to the right of the lobby is a room we call the Spoonflower Greenhouse, uh, which is a community space where we host quilt guild meetings and sewing classes and craft nights and um, you know fun things that people in the community and are here in our local area are, are invited to participate in for free and we also have staff meetings there and yoga classes and craft nights and that kind of thing um, and then after you come through the lobby uh, you're in an office uh, the the center of which is a, a huge print room uh, which is uh, surrounded uh, by glass windows so people can see what's happening inside it. And inside the print room are uh, many printers of different shapes and sizes, almost all of them running fabric, uh, some of them running some wallpaper and gift wrap. And uh, the room is humidity controlled and there are lots of air filters. It's noisy when you go in there, um, but uh, there are no nasty smells. It's an environmentally mm -hmm. friendly print room. Mm -hmm. uh, but that print room operates 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, so there are people in there all the time, uh, three shifts, and it really is the heart of our business. Um, outside the print room, there's a busy floor operations area where people are cutting fabric and uh, folding it and putting it on shelves and packing it up and um, sending it to people uh, elsewhere in the world. Uh, they're also, uh, you know, examining the fabric, looking for flaws in case we have to reprint something and signing the pack slips, uh, usually with uh, friendly and positive messages to the people who are ordering fabric from us. Uh, and then in the very front of the office, we have, um, you know, our, our uh, customer service staff and marketing team, and um, we have an R&D department as well. That's what is R&D? R&D uh, for us uh, are the people uh, responsible for figuring out ways to make our printers work better, um, to uh, find better ways to print, and that includes finding better ways to reproduce color. Um, also, you know, inks that are as uh, wash fast and bright uh, as any inks that are available. Um, so, you know, the way you achieve that is partly kind of with technology and partly with chemistry. Um, mm -hmm. So they're researching different products that might help us uh, improve our printing process. And they're also looking at you know, new printers and um, yeah, new processes that we might employ. They, they actually stay very, very busy. Mm -hmm. Our R&D department is, um, which is you know, something when we started Spinfire we never expected to have, but our R&D department is really crucial to the whole, whole business. Um, yes, and, and, and unless they uh, go unsung, uh, our engineering department is uh, in a corner of the office. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's a hardworking team of uh, people who write the code that supports our site and create new features. And, um, uh, you know, one bit of trivia, you know, about our engineering team is uh, they it consists almost exclusively of folks who came here uh, work to work cutting fabric and printing fabric. Um, so most of the people who work at Spoonflower are people who like to make things, who love design. Some of them are just artists who are kind of attracted to the creative environment, and, and some of them are folks who have businesses 
you know, making and selling handbags or designing clothing or that kind of thing on the side. Um, so they came to Spoonflower because they love what they love what we do and they're attracted to the whole idea. And then they, they have, you know, once they got here, sort of been spun out into different parts of the business based partly on their interests and their aptitudes. And um, most of our engineers are not people who started out as engineers. So we actually taught them to write code. Um, the first prerequisite was being a Spoonflower person, customer. Right, a Spoonflower person. Yeah. yeah. No, I like that. Um, so yeah, it's been. It was really neat to take the tour, and I was really impressed by. You have these two new printers that are just enormous. Yeah. Um, that are made from an Israeli company, mm-hmm. um, and it sounded like they were almost custom made for you. I mean, or you were one of maybe their <laughs> first. One of you were one of their first corporate clients, shall we say? Sort of. Yeah. There was a lot of back and forth between you were testing them and and using them and and them improving them over time. Yeah, that, that company is called uh, Cornet, and they're a company that has a, a huge amount of expertise in printing t-shirts and building oh. uh, printers for, for the t-shirt industry. And they decided to get into you know the, the business of textile printing, roll-to-roll textile printing, and they designed uh, this printer, uh, which as you point out, is very large. I could park my car inside it probably. Um, and they, they, they designed it really to do almost exactly what we're doing, which is to, to be able to do these you know, very short runs of digitally printed fabric. And um, you know, we, it's, it's a far cry from the printers we started out with, but we've been sort of transitioning to these big expensive printers. But yes, as you say, I think we were the first customer. Uh, we bought the first one and you know, we're continuing to work closely with that company to um, kind of develop that technology and help make it more mature and help them kind of understand the market. But it's been uh, brilliantly successful. Uh, the fabric, not all of the fabric that we send out the door each day is printed on, on one of those printers. But you know, within a year or so, I'm hoping all or very close to all of our fabric is printed on one of those printers. And, and um, the color is, is great and uh, the wash fastness that those printers are able to produce is a big improvement over what has been possible historically uh, yeah. with our particular method of printing. I feel like the wash fastness was maybe a pain point for a while. Am I right about that? Was that something that was a difficult challenge to sort of surmount? Yeah, I would say I would say that uh, for a lot of applications, that is a major pain point, and um, apparel being sort of, sort of the most primary one. But uh, just to sort of back up for sure. folks who are uh, you know, interested in the, the details of how we print, um, y- you know, I, I'm going to simplify a little bit for the sake of explanation. You can, you can you know, add color to fabric through a dye-based process where you're bringing color down into the fiber. And when I say fabric, I'm going to talk just about natural fibers for a minute. So with cotton, you, know, you can use a dye-based process where you're drawing the color into the fiber. Um, and to you know to do that, you've got to have uh, some chemistry, so, you know, ca- to sort of catalyze the the process of drawing the fabric in, and then you've got to activate it uh, with steam or or heat somehow to um, make the the color pop. And then of course you've got to rinse out any extra dye. Um, and it is possible to digitally print with dyes, um, but that's not what we do. 
um, if you were doing dye-based digital printing on co cotton and, and linen and silk, uh, you, you would need to chemically pre-coat all that fabric uh, before you printed it. And then after you print it, you'd have to steam it. And then after you steamed it, you'd have to wash and dry it before you could send it to anyone. So that's a pretty intensive process. And, you know, from a, a sort of ecological standpoint, has a pretty big footprint. You almost, you almost need a conventional textile facility to do that, what they call wet processing, because you've got wastewater and other things to deal with. I mean, it's, digital printing, in any way you cut it, is, is more efficient than mass producing things. But uh, that dye-based process still, you know, is, is, is a pretty big big process uh, from, from the standpoint of electricity and water and, and chemicals and waste and all that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, when we started Spoonflower, partly because uh, we wanted to develop a, a simpler, cleaner process and partly because we were, in fact, somewhat simple-minded in our understanding of what was possible, uh, we were looking for something that just allowed us to print and pretty much shipped the fabric. And uh, so we used a, a chemistry called pigments, which is the other way to add color to, to fabric. And pigments are like paint, and they just kind of sit on the surface of the cotton. And uh, your blue jeans are typically dyed using uh, pigments. And, uh, you know, just like blue jeans, uh, you know, uh, pigment over time cracks and wears and fades. Um, so you, you get a lot of color loss with pigment. Um, it is most vulnerable to what's called crocking, which is where you're rubbing the fabric uh, against itself and um, you know little particles of color come off. So you know we print we, we started spoonflower you know using pigments. Many people tried to talk us out of it. Um, but uh, to us it was the process that made the most sense. And you know the the downside we, we you know we print the fabric uh, using the pigments and then we have to heat it, which activates a binder that's in in the pigments in the ink, and that makes the fabric wash fast, but it doesn't make it immune to that crocking and fading uh, that uh, is characteristic of pigments. And so for some people, especially people making apparel, um, you know that's that's a big downside um, to our fabric. You know. It's not if you're making art quilts. Right, uh, that aren't going to be really that, that heavily washed. washed and used. Yeah. That's right. And it, 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 you know, it's using pigments is a big plus if you're making like curtains or, or decorative pillows because pigments, unlike dyes, don't fade in the sunlight or they much fade to a much uh, smaller extent. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a downside for some and not for others. And, and then the other thing that's worth noting is. You know, pigments, uh, you know, might fade on a very bright, heavily colored fabric, and the fading might not be noticeable at all on another print. Really d depends from design to design. But, but any way you cut it, you know that that if you were looking at sort of pros and cons of pigments, the biggest con is that crocking and fading, and um, the the fabric that we're printing using these new printers from Cornet is far less prone to crocking and fading than any of the other technologies that we've tried. So it's a super exciting yeah, bit of progress Yeah, it's the cutting edge of, of digital 
yeah. printing. Yeah, it's it, no, textile it's, printing. Yeah, it's been great, and yes, it's not, life on the cutting edge is not always the easiest, but I'm sure that's true. <laughs> as our, our customers know, but um, but you know, I, I guess it's sort of the important thing from my standpoint, you know, is that Spoonfar is always improving. We're always looking for right. for you know whether it's uh, you know a feature on the website. Uh, you know, or our process on the back end, we're always looking for ways to improve what we do. Right, right, and it's a process. It is. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, um, so you you began college at Earlham College yeah, in right. 1998, yeah. and then transferred to UNC Chapel Hill, and in 91, and graduated in 93 with a degree in English. That is right. And I wonder what you imagined you'd be doing as a career at that time, because I can't imagine it's this. Because this wasn't invented yet. So what? where did you see yourself? I mean, did you see yourself in an entrepreneurial setting? Was that always part of of what you were or or how did you know how did you envision it to your future yeah that's that is funny uh i think i imagined myself uh writing for a living yeah. uh, particularly uh you know i worked off and on as a journalist for during my 20s and um but about the last thing that i imagined was that i would be in you know business in any form you know that was just not the way I thought of myself, so this is uh, where I am now. It's quite a surprise to, to me, and would, would would be to my parents as well if they were alive. <laughs> um, but uh, my, you know, it's funny. My father was an entrepreneur. Uh, he ran an advertising agency for uh, a little over thirty years in Atlanta, Georgia, and it was a very small agency. But he was the kind of person who didn't do very well working for someone else. And it turns out I'm uh, probably like him in that respect. Um, I'm just really better under my own steam than I am uh, working in someone else's um, box. Right, right. So, um, you know, I feel like you, you've had a, kind of a career prior to this, prior to Spoonflower on this sort of internet-based print-on-demand setting. So sort of after the journalism, but before Spoonflower. Um, and I just wanted to see if you could describe briefly your time um, prior to founding the company. Sort of, I know you were at Lulu, and uh, what, what were your jobs like leading up to this? Well, my, my first job in the internet business was at Lulu. Um, and uh, Lulu.com uh, did not start out as Lulu.com. Uh, it started out as a, a business idea from a man named Bob Young, who is the guy who co-founded Red Hat for people who follow uh, software and open source software. Um, Bob had a big success with Red Hat and then he sort of tried to figure out what to do next and he decided that he wanted to put on a technology show, like a place where people could go and have sort of hands-on learning in a technology environment. and. Um, he hired uh, a couple of people to help him do that here in the area, one of whom was my Spoonflower co-founder, Gart Davis, who had a background in technology education, which was going to be a big component of the show. And they had a very ambitious time frame for putting on the first of what was to be many shows called Lulu Tech Circus was the, was the name of the endeavor. And Gart, in a big hurry, hired pretty much everyone he knew uh, and I knew him because I'd been to a 
Christmas party at his house. <laughs> uh, so I fell into that category of people. Someone he, yes, Gardner. Uh, someone Gardner, and um, uh, so I came came on board just to sort of help out with this, um, you know, again, sort of very hurried endeavor of Lulu Tech Circus, and we put on one show in Raleigh, uh, and it's a very intense couple of days, and then. Uh, Bob, who, who you know was behind the whole thing, decided, wow, this show thing is going to lose a lot of money really fast. <laughs> so he changed his mind about doing the show. And, and uh, he had this other uh, thing, which was what he called an open source publishing platform, a collaborative publishing platform, uh, which was a bit of software he had bought. Uh, it's sort of a fire sale uh, during the dot-com crash and uh, he put Gart and I and a you know very small crew of other people to work trying to turn that into a business and we took over the domain lulu.com and we started trying to figure out what that business was going to be and uh, it, it what it morphed into was a, a business that allowed people to publish their own books through the internet and to order you know a marketplace where people could order one copy at a time of a book and it would just be printed on demand and um, lulu.com was the f the first site to do that to make publishing a book as easy as publishing a blog uh, blogs were still pretty pretty new at the time and uh, right around that time YouTube came along as well so there was this whole what they called user-generated content revolution happening and Lulu brought that revolution to the printed word. Right, and then Spoonflower brought it to the printed yes, fabric. Uh, yes, <laughs> fast forward a few more years mm -hmm. and, um, and uh, Gard and I uh, had both left, uh, left Lulu.com and we sat down to talk about you know, other business ideas and um, my my wife is someone who orders, uh, buys a lot of fabric, and is always making things. And uh, uh, she she had ha mentioned to me one night, you know, that it was sort of frustrating and surprising to her that she couldn't print her her own fabric, design her own fabric, because she she had an idea for a particular kind of curtains for her house. And so that idea had stuck with me. So when Gart and I sat down, I you know I pointed out, I said, you know, uh, nobody's done this on demand. Right. publishing thing for, for fabric. How hard could it be? How hard could that be? That's right. <laughs> right. And, uh, and we decided to just sort of give it a go. Now, n neither Gartner or I uh, were rich, uh, but we figured we could create kind of a rough prototype for this site without spending a ton of money and bankrupting our families. And uh, we could do it slowly just to sort of test the concept. And, and so that's what we did. We did. You know, we created an invitation-only beta site and and what uh, year was this? Th this was 2008. Okay. And, um, uh, you know, I think we, we took the first dollar through that website on, like, May 24th. And um, and uh, we print, had the fabric printed at a not-for-profit in Cary, right down the road, Cary, North Carolina, called TC Squared. And, uh, you know, I just, we'd take the orders People could upload a design and check out. There was nothing to browse or see on our website. It was really quite quite rudimentary. 
and you but had one printer that we, was... We had no printers. But we, this so nonprofit no had office. one. Right, yeah. okay. <laughs> yeah, so we, I would send them the files and they would print and then I'd drive over there and pick up the fabric once a week and Kim and I, after our kids went to bed, would stay up late uh, cutting it on the floor or the dining room table and stuffing in envelopes and you know printing back slips with our our home printer and I'd take it to the post office the next day. Right. And we did that, you know, every every week for a few weeks until Gard and I, you know, looked at the waiting list of people who wanted to use their website once we actually had a proper website. Right. And we said, you know, let's go ahead and, and do this. And so, um, you know, we took out a loan and ordered a printer from Korea, which took a few weeks to arrive. And we rented, in the meantime, an old sock mill in downtown Mebane, North Carolina, where the landlord let us rent month to month. And it was a big room. And he said, well, you can rent this whole room, you know, for $1.50 a square foot or something. And we were like, well, we only need half the room. Because, <laughs> again, we didn't have much money. And uh, so he said, well, we, how about you just, we put tape down the middle, and that you, <laughs> that'll be the half of the room, this half of the room you rent. And then if we need the other half of the room, we'll take the tape up and increase the amount we paid in each month. So, um, Was that scary? I mean, was it scary to be like, all right, we're all in. Like, they, we've got customers waiting and yeah. we're there, we'll have to just figure this out. We're going to need another printer at some point. You know, this was well, a whole it, new frontier. It was. You know, the, I think that, you know, the, the really scary moment was, you know, we didn't have any employees at the time, so you know you're you're in a room with a big printer, orders are coming in, and you know you've had someone who installed the printer show you how to use it. But you know at that point, you know you've got to print all the fabric, you've got to cut the fabric, you've you know you've, you've got to do everything. And and you know up until then, mostly for me, it had been you know blogging and. <laughs> taking pictures of fabric that was printed and YouTube videos and that kind of thing. And all that I felt pretty comfortable with. I knew how to do that. But uh, when it came down to, it was just us and we had to, we had to create a factory. Um, That's when it really began to dawn on me that um, we had a, we had a lot to learn. But do you uh, feel like, I mean, you were, so you you came in as a novice really in the sewing world. I mean, you're not, your wife sews, Mm -hmm. but you, you didn't come from a textile, you know, background, you know, this is, this, you came from a tech background, from a journalism background, but not from, you know, a sewing background. And I wonder whether you feel like being a novice in some way, I mean, you were an internet marketer, you had that part of it, but um, but was like an advantage, sort of not, not really having your fingers on the tap, you know, the way that um, the current fabric uh, industry was working and sort of, you know, just coming in and being like, we've got an idea, we'll do it this way, without really being in the industry for a long time prior, did you feel like then somewhere there was an advantage there? I I, I do. I mean, I, I sometimes uh, joke that we were very much protected by our own ignorance. So, you know, there was some amount of advantage in not knowing what we were getting ourselves into. And so we were not able to become overly intimidated. But, uh, you know, I also think, you know, yes, we brought... A, a naive perspective to whether or not this was a good idea or whether it was practical. 
Um, and that actually proved to be very helpful. So there were a lot of people in the fabric industry or more, you know, more specifically just kind of in the printing industry, right. you know, who knew that these textile printers existed and, you know, had thought about this, but, but they, for a variety of reasons, thought putting it on the internet would be a bad idea um, because they didn't really, you know, who they, I think the, the thinking for them was, well, who would really want a lot of small jobs? You know, I'd rather have customers who, you know, are in the industry and know how to prepare their files. And, you know, we, we can provide a lot of value if we, you know, only have customers in the fashion industry or customers who are prototyping products and they'll pay, you know, $100 and more per yard for the fabric and we can charge that the last thing they wanted were a lot of quilters. I mean, people actually said that to us, like, oh, thank goodness, you know, uh, people who already had printing businesses were saying, thank goodness, these quilters call me and I don't know what to do with them. And, um, you know, the last thing they wanted was to print, you know, a, a quarter yard of fabric for, for someone who didn't know how to use Photoshop. Right, but that's and what you do. That, that was, those were the people we wanted to build the whole business around. Right. And, you know, they were people like uh, my wife, Kim, and, um, and uh, you know, not only did we want to build a business around them, but we got really excited by those people and what they were doing and the creativity that they were bringing to the process. And, right. and so, you know, I, I really think in that way, we were just like our customers. Um, we kind of brought our own naive enthusiasm and, you know, our uh, a lack of fear about trying, trying something new. And tackling this customer base that really nobody else wanted to deal with. Um, and that's like the unmet market right there. Right. You know, that's right. where you start to see, well, then we'll deal with them. You know, we'll help them figure out how to tile a design and how to upload it and, you know, how to do this. We'll be the one who, who will do this and print a, a small, a yard for their little project. And yes. Yeah, right. And, 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 you know, like many of the people, I think, in the DIY movement, we, we really were figuring it out as we went along. You know, we, we had an idea of what... A successful company, a successful, sophisticated company like Spoonflower would look like. We weren't mm -hmm. exactly sure mm -hmm. how to get there, but we just jumped in and right. through trial and error. Was there a turning point? I mean, what, often I feel like in businesses, there's a turning point. There's something that happens, whether it's sort of a, a you know a, a total catastrophe where you have all these orders and you just can't fill them and you know something needs to change, or or some piece of press coverage, you know, and then we were on Martha Stewart and everything right. changed. I mean, was there a, a moment where you're like, this was the turning point when that happened, that we knew this was going to, you know, this was really going to be a thing. We were going to keep going. There there were several yeah. <laughs> like that. The first one was uh, in January of 2009. And at that point, we had two employees, two, three employees, all of them were part-time, uh, who were helping print and, and cut uh, fabric. And um, But we only had two printers, and neither of them worked very well. <laughs> so these were paper printers that you'd kind of tripped up to be fabric printers yeah, to a they, degree. They they were pr printers, paper sort of, sort of uh, you know signage printers, wide format inkjet printers uh, from Japan that uh, actually some some technicians in South Korea had modified with textile handling systems and um, and we we were using them, but but both of them 
you know, were, were terrible, uh, and we could barely get a yard of usable fabric out of them. And uh, But right around that time, at the beginning of January, the New York Times home section, actually it was a, sort of over Christmas, they, they called us and they said, we want to do a piece on you in the New York Times, in the home section. And we were very excited. And they sent a photographer, and they then the story didn't come out. And we called and said, you know, you know, what's going on with the story? And they, they said, well, our editor said that everyone's already covered you. <laughs> You're like, no. <laughs> and, uh, and I said, no, no. You know, but at that point, a lot of blogs had written about us already. But, but, but they're not know, the New York Times. <laughs> they're not the New York Times. Nobody knew who we were. You sure. know, we were a l- little ragtag band, band of people working in this um, uh, old sock mill. And by the way, you know, I was saying we had three part-time employees. You know, we also had Gart and I and and our spouses working pretty much full time. So, not you know, and sometimes our kids. You know, when we could get them get them in there doing something useful, um, which wasn't very often. <laughs> um, so yeah, you know, we we did we did have uh, lots of help, but you know, no one in our families were getting paid. <laughs> um, anyway, the the New York Times. You know, I told them. No, we had everyone hasn't covered us. Uh, we're we're a brand new company, and they said, "Oh, okay." And they rescheduled the story. So the the story came out um, around the middle of January, and we were on the cover of the home section. And almost immediately, you know, we started getting calls and and um, you know getting hit by lots and lots of people. And the you know the big trouble was we couldn't really print the fabric very right. well, and. Um, and then the economy at that time was in a recession and had crashed. You know, in, be- in between us taking out the lease on our office and the loan to buy our printer in August and January, that was when the economy went in the tank and the banks were not willing to give us a loan and we didn't have enough cash to just go out and buy new printers. And by the way, when we weren't sure if we bought new printers if they'd work any better than the ones that we had. And um, so we, we were going through bank applica- application after application and um, getting turned down. And we got a grant from a local group called NCIDEA, ncidea.org, that you know, provides some money to you know, about 12 different startups a year. In North Carolina. In North Carolina, right. and that was hugely helpful. Uh, and that you know, got us through a few, few more weeks, but we really needed um, a loan from a bank, and and finally we found a bank that did give us uh, an SBA-backed loan. And the SBA, as you might remember, was the beneficiary of the stimulus money that was uh, passed right around that time. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were putting pressure on banks to actually lend it out. And so one bank finally agreed to do that. And um, and uh, we bought, I think, four printers. Uh, we had to put down 25% of the money for them and to do that you know we t- I took a loan out of home equity and I think Gart did as well and um, so we cut you know the, the, so at that point you're really all in yeah <laughs> um, so you're on the hook for you know a big you know loan yeah $100,000 loan and um, and you've borrowed you know what equity you have so uh, fortunately, those printers worked <laughs> better than the first couple, right? And um, and we were kind of up and running. But you know, in between there, with the New York Times and 
us getting that loan and getting those printers in, our customers were waiting weeks and weeks for us to ship an order. So longer, you know, the, the queue became longer and longer. Right. And it, it was a really terrible time. We were providing, you know, in that sense, a very bad service but to our customers. But we were also blogging about it and trying to sort of be transparent and chronicle what was going on. Right, which does mean a lot. In the business. And, and so many of these people, because they had signed up, you know, to the site as a sort of beta prospect, they were just rooting for us. Right. You know, so they cut us all this slack. You know, they were very forgiving. And, um, you know, uh, they, they, were, they were rooting for our business to, to succeed. And, you know, without... I think that was sort of when the, the, the real core of this one of our community formed. And uh, you know, thank goodness. <laughs> and, and now you have you have over a hundred employees here, um, and you know you've got these these two gigantic printers plus a whole lot of other printers going. And uh, you know, and, and times have changed. So, do you, are people still rooting for you? I mean, do you feel like out there people are still rooting for you in that way? I, I really do. I, I mean, I I recognize that the expectations that people have of us are higher as they should be. You know, they don't expect to have to wait weeks for their fabrics and they you know expect us to produce a high quality product and um, you know to be professional and <laughs> in all aspects and uh, that's certainly as it should be but but I really do when I go out in the world I meet people all the time you know even if they weren't Spoonflower customers they were cognizant of what we were doing from the beginning and they followed the progress of the company and they think they recognize that you know, the service that we've made available has empowered artists from all over the world and makers, uh, you know, artists in, to tackle a new medium fabric that was never accessible or right. available to them before and makers to create new products and try out new concepts that they would otherwise never have been able to try. So, you know, people have a lot of respect for the impact that we've had on the world and um, and in that sense, they're still very much on our side, even you know, even though uh, you know, like any business, we we sort of stub our toe now and then, and you know, do the wrong thing or send someone a bit of fabric that might be flawed. <laughs> right, right. I mean, what you're doing is you're helping people create the raw material, and that's something that in fabric, unless you're a weaver, you know, is really hard to do, or a screen printer. This is. You know, this is the raw. This is the raw material that people make things with, and I want to talk a little bit about the marketplace mm -hmm. because, um, you know, Spoonflower's success really is user generated. Mm -hmm. So it's all about the the number and 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 the beauty and the type of uh, designs people are creating and uploading and um, and making public. Really, to I mean, the, all the fabric that I've bought on Spoonflower has been from the public marketplace that that's on the site where I, you know, browse by a certain uh, tag or category mm -hmm. and then and purchase fabric that way. And so tell me about the, the marketplace. And, and obviously there's also wallpaper now is, and wrapping paper. So it's not just fabric, but you can have your designs printed on other substrates too. But, um, but the marketplace, I think, was always part of the idea. It took maybe a little while to get it up and running. Um, uh, so, you know, so why, why have, you know, why have people... Uh, generate the designs themselves. I mean, why why have that be part of it and, and have them also be able to profit from it? I mean, everybody who sells a yard 
makes is a ten percent, I think, of, of the the cost. Yeah. Um, so you so there's there's kind of a co-entrepreneurial uh, thing going on here as well. Yeah, I th you know I think that that really is a crucial uh, part of the the vision for Spoonflower, and as you point out, it, you know it wasn't possible for us to to launch Spoonflower fully formed because um, you know we our resources were so thin. You know, Gart, my co-founder Gart Davis, was writing all the code at the beginning, and um, so we you know we had this vision for a place where people could upload and also make their designs available for sale, but that took about 18 months or so to get launched. But, you know, that marketplace is what makes Spoonflower more than just, you know, a printing service. And, uh, you know, what I, I sometimes describe Spoonflower as like YouTube for fabric. You know, that concept is really important. You know, YouTube came along and displaced, you know, a world where uh, there were content producers you know, NBC, ABC, CBS, uh, you know, that decided what kinds of content people might want to watch, made big investments in it, and put it out there, you know, in a in a very finite channels, and, you know, people either liked it or they didn't like it. And, you know, YouTube completely turned that on its head by not, you know, seeking to curate or control content at all, uh, creating a platform that enabled uh, anyone to distribute their own content. And, uh, you know, that uh, started out as just skateboard videos <laughs> in the case of YouTube, but ended up changing the world. And um, I don't think any of us could really imagine a world now where someone with a video had no platform where they could make it accessible for other people to watch. And so, you know, textile design is a niche, uh, and you, you can say, well, <laughs> fabric design doesn't change the world, but creating a platform that gives artists and product developers, you know, we'll some of them, we might call them crafters, but, you know, in a, we can call them also, um, you know, entrepreneurs and product developers, you know, creating a platform where people can create new stuff, put their work out there, and you know, uh, the world can come to it and figure out what it wants to to buy. Um, you know that that that's the way it should be. Um, you know, uh, the, so uh, that you know that in its small way is how Spoonflower set out to change the world. Right, and it can be hyper hyper niche, so that only you know two or three other people in the world like this particular design, and yet it's still available to everyone, whereas, yeah. you know, it doesn't, so it doesn't have to have mass market appeal. That's right. You know, I, I uh, sometimes use the example, uh, you know, dog breeds uh, are pretty good examples because everyone's got some dog breed that they're kind of, you know, fond of or, or crazy about. And, um, you know, if you were somebody who, you know, what is the, the, the queen has corgis, right? Mm -hmm. So if you were somebody who really loved corgis, you know, there might be a fabric store, probably in the UK, somewhere that has some corgi fabric that you could buy, you know, but you'd, <laughs> you'd really have to go looking right. pretty hard. Uh, but if you, you know, type corgi fabric into Google at this point, 
you know, you're going to find, you know, 200 plus results on Spoonflower. You know, there's not just one Corgi fabric to choose from. There's 200 different designs and you can order any of them on any of 15 different base fabrics or wallpaper or gift. Right. And uh, yeah, so, you know, that, that, that is a sort of a, it's one of the things the, the internet's very good for, right, is uh, providing ways to sort of uh, consolidate these very narrow slices of interest. And, right, and to a worldwide market. That's right. Absolutely. So how much of, of the success of Spoonflower do you think sort of is, is about timing? I mean, there was, you know, sort of Etsy's success and this DIY maker movement and YouTube, as you talked about, and it, it almost like rides that wave of Etsy in a way. And I wonder, you know, do you feel like it, it worked to a degree because of the moment it came it came along you know I mean despite the rough economy in there and, and other things but um, you know I don't know if it if it w- would it work the same way if it started today I mean you know the, I feel like it came right around the same time and rode the wave of the of this trend of, of Etsy and other DIY movements yeah I, I think it's impossible to separate timing yeah <laughs> uh, from, from something like this but we I very much think of spoonflower as being part of what I call the Etsy verse and um, you know Etsy grew up uh, you know partly because of something that eBay did poorly right so it was very difficult to look for artisan items on eBay you know it was much easier to buy, you know, uh, used art, auto parts and you know th- things like or collectibles, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Star Wars action figures uh, on on eBay. But it, it was a very poor environment for things that were unique uh, or made by hand. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, you know, Etsy came along and and, and provided that, but it also you know, was sort of at the um, forefront of a shift in values uh, toward, you know, things that that are are not mass produced. So, you know, I think you, you, you can kind of see the same shift in values in terms of how people eat, uh, and but it's, you know, it's also how they shop. So people go to, you know, first they went to Whole Foods and now they're going more and more to farmers markets, um, so, so they're moving away from. This is perhaps a little overly optimistic, but I think they're moving away from a sort of Walmart kind of world, or, or at least significant populations of people are choosing to express their values partly by what they buy. Um, so you've got people who are expressing their values through what they make. You know, people have always. M- made things and had hobbies and that sort of thing but but you know the the big difference is now there's significant portions of people who are just buying those things too choosing to buy them and that that really is an expression of values and and so you know Spoonflower uh, came along and, and a lot of customers both at the beginning and now are people who have Etsy shops who are trying to figure out ways to add nuance and expression and individualism you know these sort of artisan qualities to things that they're making you know whether they're pillows or dolls uh, or you know fabric covered ceramic uh, taxidermy faux taxidermy Um, and uh, you know so Spoonflower existed uh, sprang up as another tool in the toolbox 
for people who are creating that kind of thing. And then, you know, to, to go back to how people spend their money, you know, part of Spoonflower is people who are creating things, but a lot of it is also just people who are buying fabric, right? Yeah. But by, you know, choosing fabrics that are unique, I'm also kind of expressing a value system, right? I'm choosing to buy fabrics that, you know, reflect my particular worldview or niche or aesthetic instead of just the, you know, 15 or 20 fabrics that might be available to me in Target or, you know, Walmart or Joanne. And I've always felt that um, there's, for a significant number of people, shopping on Etsy and shopping on Spoonflower as well is an artistic act in and of itself. So it's an expression, an artistic expression just to shop because you know that you're shopping from you know, artisan design products that you're, you know, that are sort of very niche and, and very, um, yeah, sort of uh, different from what what's on the mass market. Okay. And, and that's artistic right. in and of itself. And, you, and you're buying directly from a designer, too. So in the, in the same way that, you know, when you buy, you get this great sense of satisfaction when you buy at the farmer's market because right. you're actually... Handing you know, your cash over to, to the woman who picked the asparagus. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And, you know, when you buy a piece of fabric on Spoonflower, you get a thank you note from the person that designed it. Right. And they're like, great, you know, uh, would love to see what you make with it. Right. And, um, you know, you, that kind of connection... Uh, you know, it's just not possible in the sort of old retail world. Right. And those relationships are really exciting. I think that's really neat. Um, So uh, in the last couple of years, Spoonflower has done some neat collaborations, I feel like. So um, you've you've worked with Creative Bug, Mm -hmm. um, a little bit with Skillshare, with Uppercase Magazine, with um, a shoe company, Milk and Honey Shoes, and there's probably a bunch of other ones that I'm missing. But I'm just interested in this sort of idea of you know, putting the fabrics and, and the what you have to offer out there with these other companies and what's sort of the strategy behind that and what you've gotten from it? Yeah, you know, that, that is a good question. You know, the, the place that I kind of start when I consider these collaborations is, we, you know, we have this amazing community of designers who use Spoonflower. And these are the people who are creating the artwork. So right. they may or may not be people who sew <laughs> and make things. You know, these are really artists, um, and uh, many of them digital artists. Uh, but you know, they they've sort of formed around Spoonflower. We have a weekly design contest that we do that has a different theme each week, and you know, this truly international community of talented artists have sort of formed uh, around that design contest and for those people like one of the things that they aspire to is you know licensing their designs out into the world you know that's how they that that's what success looks like for them you know they might get a fabric line but they might also get their you know stuff licensed on greeting cards or you know uh, some other product that's going to get manufactured turned turned into something concrete and sold out in the world so you know when we started doing these partnership contests we were really kind of looking for uh, you know wins for the designer community right sort of American Idol kinds of models where you know anybody can can participate in a Spoonflower contest you don't have to have a portfolio or you know, a resume, and you, know, you can just come and try and design fabric, and and so we were trying to find opportunities where, uh, you know, the community can vote on these designs, and then but the winner actually gets to go on to some next level uh, of success, and 
and we've done a, a ton of fun contests and, and collaborations, as you point out, around that concept. We do one every year called the Fabric 8 contest, mm -hmm. uh, where the winner of the contest goes on to have a collection with a fabric company. Um, we've done that contest a few times with Robert Kaufman, and um, th this year uh, I think we'll be doing it with another company that we haven't announced yet, so I will <laughs> That's I'll keep exciting. my uh, yeah. lips uh, closed until we're <laughs> ready to announce that. But but uh, again, you know, it's it, it's it's not that novel a concept. It is sort of American Idol for fabric design. But um, for us, it's really about giving these designers an opportunity to be seen and discovered. Right, and if you think back to what we talked about at the beginning about the printers who were like, oh my gosh, thank goodness I take these quilters off my hands. They are driving me crazy asking for small, you know, print runs of their designs. And you were like, well, we'll serve them. They'll be our clients. And so this is, you know, really serving them, saying to them, you know, you've got talent and skill and we can help you launch this and make this into something more than it is and, and really further your career so well you know it's I it really spans all all levels and the you know the the starting place for me uh, is always um, you know people say well how can I get started in fabric design should I go take a Photoshop course or whatever but you know I, I like to start at a much more basic level um, you know dr draw something on a piece of paper scan it play around with it you know cut cut out different shapes and color pieces of paper and make a collage and uh, you know scan that and start trying to create a fabric design I mean, to, to, to me you know the the root of this is experimentation and uh, I know a lot of people get intimidated when they come to our site and they see you know the contest winners every week for example and and they don't realize you know that those are actually you know, a lot of them very very accomplished artists who've been doing this for many years um, but you know to me it's really important that we we have contests and that we just in general communicate and accessibility so for people who've never tried fabric design at all and you have um, something they can come and do right and you have on the website a way for them to tile the design so in other words you might you know think to yourself well I could never design it because all I know how to do is draw something or take a photo or something like that but I can't tile it and make a good repeat and I and right. know how to use Photoshop and do all of that stuff but you actually have built into the software on the Spoonflower site a way for people to experiment with that and to do it and to create what they need to create to make the fabric yeah that's right so so if for people who haven't tried it you know you can you could draw you know a, a flower uh, or a face you know mm -hmm. on a piece of paper and you could scan it and upload it and then you can choose repeat options to sort of tile it to fill a whole area of fabric and uh, we try to do tutorials on the blog uh, that you know provide these really accessible projects something you can do with a cell phone camera for example or something you can do with a piece of paper um, and uh, and then we also every now and then have contests that are constrained in that way like you have it has to be designs that were originally drawn with crayons. Uh -huh. or something like that. Right, yeah. right, right, which is neat. All right, so um, before we end, I usually, toward the end of my show, I ask my guests to recommend something they're enjoying right now. I'm going to put you on the spot because I didn't give you any time to prepare. But um, something, you know, it could be a tool, it could be a book, it could be a magazine, a website, uh, an app on their phone, or mm -hmm. um, just something that, you know, you would recommend to a creative friend right now. So what are you, what are you into at this moment? Well... That is a good question. 
um, you know, I, I uh, am really taken, as you point out, we just did a collaboration uh, with Creative Bug. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, so I've been really interested in what Creative Bug is doing and also, you know, what Craftsy is doing, which is another yeah. uh, site that offers lots of tutorials for getting into new areas. So I don't have a huge uh, amount of spare time to, to, to go out and... You have three daughters as well, uh, we should mention. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I don't have a huge amount of time to go learn stuff, but in, just in browsing those two sites recently in particular, I've been kind of putting together this mental list of things that I would, you know, courses I would really like to take and um, new stuff I would really like to try. My wife, uh, for what it's worth, because uh, it is really her creativity that uh, inspired Spinflower, has um, gotten really into hat making wow. uh, recently. So she she's taken classes and uh, being a milliner and is continuing to sign up for those classes and bought supplies and her, her house is actually full of hats. That's uh, amazing. Amazing, uh, beautiful hats, uh, I should add. I love that millinery is back. And my husband wears a fedora, and he's obsessed. And he yeah. uh, goes to this specialty hat shop in Boston that he loves. So it's back. I have a feeling uh, there may be a hat shop in our future. <laughs> it sounds like it. Um, all right, so where can people find Spoonflower online if they're interested in learning more about the site? Uh, Spoonflower can be found at www.spoonflower.com and we also have the, the blog that I mentioned which has uh, lots of tutorials, at least a couple of tutorials every week and including uh, also a giveaway that we do each week which usually has a small but fun prize, you know, craft supplies, uh, free fabric, sometimes crafting books, quilting books, that kind of thing, design books. Uh, so that can be found at blog.spoonflower.com. And we're also on Facebook, and we're also on Twitter, and uh, we're on Instagram and Pinterest. Uh, and all, all is Spoonflower. Yeah. All, all, all of that is Spoonflower, that's awesome. right. Awesome, super, okay. Um, well, thank you so much, Stephen. I really enjoyed talking to you and learned a lot as well. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it was great. And you've been listening to the Walsh and Apps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg, and I invite you to visit my blog, walshingapps.com, where you'll find helpful information for creative entrepreneurs, as well as tutorials and patterns for making stuffed animals and dolls. And if you enjoy the show, tell a friend about it. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.